Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello again and welcome back at last to Signals to Danger. Marriage and honeymoon is out of the way. Other engagements and arrangements are removed from the table. You once more have my full undivided attention. I would love to take this opportunity to thank Chris, Bessie, Rex, Neil and Sue for signing up to the Patreon. Thank you so much for your support. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Considering how long it's been since the last episode, I've decided to make a decision. I'm going to draw a line under season one and make a move into a second season of the podcast. So this is season two, episode one. Once again, I am sorry that it's taken so long to get here and I can only apologise for the wait. Now that we're back, should I just stop rambling and get started? Okay, here we go. Metal and wood, splintered and bent, burning and crackling, shout of pain, cries for help. While the world ripped itself apart on the fields of Flanders, how could it be that some of this day's most terrifying sights could be found on a remote section of Scottish Railway. The year is 1915, and the place, Quinton's Hill. Carriages are crushed, one on top of another. Investigators at the scene search through the wreckage for the A point's failure. This is Signals to Danger, a podcast where we look at major rail disasters which have occurred in the UK, explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out, and how each of these accidents shaped the industry going forwards. I'm Dan, I work within the rail industry in my day-to-day life, but today I'll be the one taking you through this podcast. And for regulars of season one, you might be a bit surprised when at this point I don't tell you that we're going to sit and have a go talking through what's happening in the year 1915. I normally would have spent a bit of time here talking about what was going on at the world at the time, but I'm going to try a little bit different this time and not do that section, and we'll see how it feels. In 1915, the nation, and indeed the world, was firmly in the grip of the First World War. War on a scale unknown previously, and using weapons unseen on the field of human conflict. Sabre and musket were making way for artillery, the tank and the aeroplane. Technology is always at the forefront of war, and the winner, well, that's normally the side with the most advanced equipment. Some wars consist of one side vastly over-equipped compared to the other, and there's a great line from The War of the Worlds which I think perfectly sums up this type of conflict. Bows and arrows against the lightning. Although in that context, I think it was cannon against the Martians' heat ray. The First World War wasn't like that. The main participants were world superpowers at the forefront of what was possible. 
almost like for like, both sides developed new weapons and ways of killing each other for the entire war. Marginal gains of territory, interspersed with periods of stalemate, but that extended the war for four horrendous years. While the fields of Flanders saw the fighting, back on home soil the gears of the war machine also turned. Ammunition factories forged and filled shells for the guns. Vehicles were built, uniforms sewn and supplies packaged. These activities were not all undertaken on the cliffs of Dover or directly adjacent to the docks at Portsmouth. Far from it, in fact. Factories up and down the nation contributed to the war effort, from the Welsh valleys to the industrial heartlands of the north. British people contributed to the war effort however they could, and these factories were a key component of the collective war effort. Once all these supplies were created, they needed to be transported to the front line, and for this, the railway stepped up to the task. In 1914, the country's railway network was composed of 23,000 miles of track, connecting 4,000 stations, and manned by 700,000 workers. When war broke out, it swung into action and started to play its part. In some areas, short connecting lines were built to allow the railway system to function more efficiently. Railways were crucial for conveying troops and their equipment, and many of the camps were provided with new branch lines and sidings, as were new munitions factories. At every point where our nation has embarked on great enterprise, missions of industry, the railway has played an essential part in making that happen. It steps into the role of being the conveyor belts of the nation. Trainloads of ammunition were loaded up in the Midlands and lifted onto ships on the south coast. All day and all night, railwaymen went about their duties and played their role. Well, not just railwaymen, though. When war broke out, a 100,000 men enlisted almost overnight, and gaps in the industry opened up. These were filled with women, stepping themselves into the breach to make the machine turn. 1.6 million women in the country stepped into traditionally male jobs, and while the world tore itself apart, at least this one fraction of life changed slightly for the better. Of all the supplies the railway moved at this time, one was more precious than any. More crucial to the war effort, more valuable to the people of our country, and more able to influence the outcome of the conflict most. Soldiers. In their thousands they boarded trains, travelled across the country to train up to fight and then headed south. They alighted trains in Dover or Folkestone, boarded troop transports and crossed the channel to war. Many never returned. So yes, of all the cargo transported by the railway, the most important was men. By the 22nd of May 2015, the Great War had already been raging for nearly a year. Sides were drawn and the supply of men and machinery to the trenches was equally as established. In February, forces of the Triple Entente, Britain, France and Russia, started fighting on a new front against the Ottoman Empire. Troops landed on the peninsula of Gallipoli, which is in modern-day Turkey. To fight a new front required a supply of new men, 
and over the first few months of the campaign, men were sent on their way to the front. Men like those of the Royal Scots. On the morning of the 22nd, they massed at the station in Labour, close to Falkirk in Scotland. Preparing to start their long journey to join the war effort in Gallipoli. The first leg of this journey would involve getting them to the port of Liverpool, and then a ship onto the continent. The platforms there contained the train that would move them. A steam loco, a Caledonian Railway 139 class, number 121 to be precise. A tender loco with four coupled driving wheels stood at the head of 21 vehicles, 15 of them carriages, five freight vehicles, and a brake van which brought up the rear. This sounds like quite a big train, and yes it was. However, there were almost 500 men of the Scots waiting to board. The journey was going to be a long one. So the men settled in, many of them getting their heads down to sleep as the early morning departure left the station. The journey to Liverpool meant that the train would first head west towards Glasgow and then down the west coast using the main line. Unsurprisingly, this would be the current west coast main line, heading south across the border into England, past Carlisle, Lancaster, Preston, and then out towards the Mersey for connections to the steamers. That long, arduous journey had begun but it was supposed to be the calm before the storm of war. This troop transport wasn't the only train departing that morning. Several others were also on the move. In fact, due to the fact that this line was one of the two main cross-border routes, there were many trains travelling through the borders region, even at this time of day. A special train, not in the usual timetable, just like the troop special, was already headed south down the line towards England. A freight train of empty coal wagons was making its way south towards the border. Another freight was also headed towards the area of Quinton's Hill. At 4.30 in the morning, the train departed Carlisle, heading north towards Scotland. Considerably slower than your average passenger train carrying its heavy cargo of goods, this train started to lumber north towards Scotland. And there were a couple of other trains booked out from Carlisle in those sort of early hours of the day. Two of them were sleepers from London up to Glasgow and Edinburgh respectfully. They were meant to depart at 4.550 and or 6.05, heading up into Scotland and splitting off to the two cities around the area of Carstairs. Shortly after they left Carlisle, a local stopping service would depart, timetabled for 10 past 6 and also heading north into Scotland. There was one issue, however, with these sleepers and the close departure time of that local train. Carlisle is a long way from Euston, 300 miles to be precise, and, well, even modern trains take over three hours to travel the distance. That's that's a long time for the little things to go wrong with the running of the train. Little delays which build up over distance and time. Not to mention that the three-hour journey of modern times does not include station stops of 20 minutes or so to change engine, refuel, take on water, swap out coaches. Some of these station stops were 20 minutes or so to do all of that. And all of them were regular features of long-distance train travel in the early 1900s. So, unless the machine had been particularly well-oiled that evening, there was a lot of potential to add little delays in. And it was unsurprising that at least one of these two sleepers had a bit of delay in it by the time when it reached this point in the route fairly often. Delays on these sleepers had a direct effect at Carlisle. At ten past six, there was that local train. Now a delay on the sleepers would get in the way of that train. And there is a general principle on the railway of local trains being held for long-distance expresses, up to a degree. 
quite often dictated by head codes and the priority of each service in question. And we see that all the time today, although it's not quite as simple as just that. Train operators have specific arrangements as to how they'll recover the service from disruption, and these are agreed with Network Rail and known as Service Recovery Agreements. These are the documents that say that if X stopping train is running Y minutes late, it won't call at stations B or C, but run as an express to station D. Or that you will hold up the departure of the stopping service up to a certain time to let the express pass it. Sometimes the arrangements outlined in them might not make immediate sense, at least not in a parochial local area kind of view, or without viewing the wider network or the service as a contributing factor. But when you view this in the wider context, the picture does become clearer. Which means that sometimes decisions might not seem initially intuitive. And it's not something that's only present nowadays. In fact, I'm talking about it because it has a relevance when we look at 1915 and the platforms at Carlisle. Despite the fact that the sleepers travelled faster than the local train, if one of them was delayed, then the protocol was to let the stopping train leave at 6.10 or rather at 6.17, which is at the time it quite often really departed. This would put the train out in front of the expresses, but if it was held at Carlisle, it would then also need to be held to depart after more expresses due to depart shortly afterwards. And eventually you might as well not run it at all, and you're not providing the service to those people further down the line, and it didn't help that the expresses that would be held after were from an opposing company's um, timetable, So on the morning in question, the expresses were running late, and the plan therefore in that case was to run the stopper out first and allow the expresses to pass it at a later point further down the line. One such place this could take place was at Quinton's Hill. Quinton's Hill was the home of an intermediate signal box between stations, a remote location which could be found just north of Gretna Green, famed for eloping couples. The line here changed from double track, one line up to London and one line down into Scotland into a brief four-track section. In front of the signal box were the two main lines and a passing loop in each direction. These loops allowed trains of different speeds to pass each other and proceed forwards at the best possible pace. With two slow-moving freights, one in each direction, two express trains, the troop special headed south and the sleeper heading north and a local train all in the mix as well, It was clear that the signaller at Quentin's Hill would have some work cut out for him this morning. signalman could be a lonely role, especially if he were on the night shift. Wrapping up his night turn on the morning of the 22nd was George Meakin. His shift was due to end at 0600, so he wasn't far away from the end of his time in the box. His replacement was on the way, James Tinsley, who normally travelled up to the box on the local train from Carlisle, which in itself is interesting because that train wasn't due to leave Carlisle until after the night shift had ended, um, 
Well, that's a factor that would come up later in the investigation into what took place here. The first of the trains to arrive at Quinton's Hill that morning was the northbound freight train. In order to make way for the passenger trains following it, Meekin sent the train into the northbound down loop. Once the train was settled in the loop, it cleared the main line and Meekin could start looking at what else was headed his way. Next was the northbound local train. His relief, Tinsley was on board, so I'm sure Meekin was conscious of making sure it was dealt with promptly. Meekin told in his account to investigators, the local train was belled to me at 6.20, accepted at 6.20 and arrived at 6.30, and knowing by my information that the 5.50 and the 6.50 express trains from Carlisle were running late, I considered that it would be a necessity to shunt the local train at Quinton's Hill. Meekin received his bell signals from Gretna Box, offering him the local train 20 minutes after his shift ended, and with the men being clear, he signalled back to accept it straight away. The train arrived in front of the box 10 minutes later. He knew the fact that the expresses were following the local train meant that he needed to shunt the train here at Quinton's Hill and clear the path for those expresses heading up to Glasgow and Edinburgh. It was at this point, well, he was confronted with an issue. The down loop, which he would ideally have used, was occupied and the down freight was already sat there, so the loop wasn't available. There was another option that was available, although it feels a little bit uneasy. There was a crossover between the up and down mains at Quinton's Hill as well, and therefore Meakin could shunt the local train forward a little and reverse it over the crossover and leave the train on the up main facing the wrong way in the down direction. Now this train would of course be blocking the up main with two trains headed down from the north, the empty coal special and the 500 men of the Royal Scots on their troop special. Well, with the correct signals set and the signals set to danger and it wasn't a problem this practice was allowed by the rules so prior to the arrival of the local the call special had been halted at the home signal on the up main just off slightly from the loops at quinton's hill the local then shunted across the crossover and onto the up main out of the way of the express train following it in an ideal world, the coal empties would have run through and been taken into a loop at Kingsmore near Carlisle, though there wasn't accommodation available for it then. So it was decided they would stay at Quinton's Hill briefly. After the passenger train was stationary on the up main, the coal empties were signalled into the up loop next to the up main. So the, well, the area at Quinton's Hill at this point was starting to look a bit busy. Both the loops were full, and a passenger train, Bang Road, which is railway jargon for on the wrong line, on the up main. With a troop train now approaching from the north and sleepers from the south, it would take some fancy footwork to get everything cleared and through the area, but nothing that the signallers couldn't achieve. The next step would be for the expresses to pass on the down main, then the local would shunt back onto the down main and continue with its journey, and then the two freight trains released from their respective routes when possible after the troop train had run through the area down towards England. Convoluted, a little bit fiddly, but manageable and safe. Meekin's account continued. At 6.34, I replaced the loop point and the signal. The local train arrived at 06.30. My mate, meaning Tinsley, his relief, arrived by that train and would reach the signal box a minute or two afterwards. I made my mate aware of the position of the trains at and approaching my box, and he took charge of the work from that time. 
Meekin recounted how he told Tinsley that the coal train had been shunted into the loop to make space for the troop train, that the local was stood on the down main, and that the expresses would now be leaving Carlisle, so there was no time to run the local to the next station, Kirkpatrick. He told him that the troop train had passed Lockerbie, and had been going through at 6.32, so in his mind Tinsley should have had a full awareness of what was going on. Following his handover to Tinsley, Meekin sat in the corner of the box and started to read the paper, which had been delivered on the local stopping train, addressed to Tinsley, I might add. He, according to him, did not take any further role in the signalling, nor did he pay any attention to the work of his colleague. The solitary workplace of the signal box was slowly becoming less so. Shortly after Tinsley had entered, the fireman of the local train joined him. There was a reason for this, he... Didn't just fancy the warmth and a brew. It was Rule 55. This rule stated that if a train was brought to a stand at a signal and within three minutes in clear weather or immediately in rain, snow or fog, the driver must dispatch his fireman, guard or any shunter riding on the train to the signal box to ensure that the signalman was aware of the presence of the train and that all safeguards to protect it were in place. This rule had been brought in to try and protect trains after a spate of accidents where signalers had forgotten trains stood on the tracks at their signals. Once a representative from the train was sure that the train was protected, he was to sign the register as confirmation. They were also joined by the brakeman of the empty coal train, inquiring as to how the rest of his journey might look, how long they might be detained. For a short time, Meekin sat in the box, reading his paper and sharing the occasional fact about the... uh, ongoings of the war. He paid no attention to the signalling being done by Tinsley, and at some point in the first of this in this time the first of the delayed express trains sped through from south to north without incident. By about ten to seven, Meekin prepared to leave the signal box. As he was doing so, he became aware of something being very wrong. The troop train passed the box. It collided head-on with a local train sat on the up-main just beyond. The noise was horrific. Wood, splintered, metal screeched. Meekin turned, having maintained an awareness of where the respective trains were, and called back to Tinsley. Where is the 605? The point of collision beyond the troop train and the local train was 62 yards south of the signal box, just past the points of the crossover road in the up-line. When this collision occurred, the engine of the local train was driven back 42 yards and the four coaches of his train driven back for a distance of about 136 yards, the couplings between the tender and the leading engine being broken. The tender of this engine was on the upline, but the engine itself was now derailed in the six-foot way. The engine of the troop train turned over onto its right side, touching the engine of the local train with its front end and against the empty wagons in the up-loop line with its tender laid across the down. Some of the carriages of the troop train shot right over their engine, and the furthest of them was opposite the tender of the local train, and to the south of the point of collision, the wagons in the loop line were also covered with debris of the carriages of the troop. The driver of the local train, David Wallace, had been stood in his cab, passing the time while the fireman was up in the box. He then looked up and saw the troop train approaching from around 200 yards away, Without time to do anything of consequence, apply steam, move his train, signal for danger, anything, he did what he could do. He saved his life. 
he jumped clear of the cab to the left towards the down lines and the down loop. He was unhurt in the collision, luckily, but he was familiar with the route and the ways things worked round here. He had a distinct belief that danger was not yet gone. He knew that in the second of that the second of the two sleepers was yet to pass and was likely not far off. He bolted across the tracks and under the wagons of the freight in the down loop. He saw from this vantage point that the carriages of the troop train were badly telescoped, riding into and over the tops of each other, and that the tender of the troop train had fouled the down lines. He saw troops climbing from the wreckage, trying to make their way across to the downside where he was, and he called to them, warning that the sleeper was expected. Some stood there in the tracks next to the wrecked trains. Almost immediately, less than a minute after the collision, the second sleeper train collided with the wreckage, compounding and worsening the situation even further. When the express arrived, it ran through some of the wreckage ahead of the engine of the troop train, and then its leading engine came into violent collision with the tender of the troop train, which was lying across the down line. It was driven back and to the left for about 30 yards, right through the wagons of the goods train in the down loop, onto the embankment, the leading engine of the express coming to rest partially across the wreckage of these wagons. The carriages of two heavy passenger trains, a local and the wagons of the down freight, had now become a mass of wreckage across the main lines. It was inevitable that some men, some of the soldiers, had been stood in the track bed of the down main, having freed themselves from the troop train, at the point where the sleeper arrived. Lives were almost certainly lost at that point. Others were caught up in the wreckage of more carriages and engines becoming violently involved in the accident. And unfortunately, what had become a grim morning in the Scottish borders was not quite finished. In the wreckage of wood and metal, now just a chaotic mess across the loops at Quinton's Hill, fires began to emerge. One of them was noticed by the brakeman of the troop train. He'd managed to extricate himself from his wreckage and ran to the signal box to see that the line had been blocked and warning sent, and when he got there, he turned to look at the wreckage, to the area where the troop train's locomotive was lying. A tongue of fire rose from that wreckage, two yards tall, and he turned to a soldier near him who had also freed himself. Look at that now, he said, and there is no water. David Wallace, the driver of the local train, saw that same fire spring up. He collected extinguishers from the wreckage of the express and mounted a roof on the wreckage. One after another, he discharged the four or five extinguishers into the growing blaze, but they did not seem to make much of an impression. Fires built up around where the engines of the trains had been buried and surrounded by wooden coaches to the point where it started to burn fiercely. Tenders had been upended. They no longer carried enough water to realistically fight the fires and there just weren't enough extinguishers to fight the growing blaze. Then on top of everything came the sound of explosions, several of them heard by many witnesses, throwing debris into the air and scattering a sort of shrapnel around the scene. The tanks for the gas lighting on the 12 vehicles of the troop train, which featured the older setup. The war effort had pressed older stock into service, so the slightly dated gaslit carriages were spending more time out on the network and less time headed to the scrapyard. Twelve of them had featured within the troop train. 
With little stopping it and plenty of fuel, the fire spread and spread, and rescue was truly a race against time for those trapped within the wreckage of the trains. In 2015, the BBC reported the words of Colonel Watson, a then 100-year-old veteran of the Royal Scots. He said, All that could be rescued were rescued. Many of them had amputations carried out underneath burning carriages so that they could be rescued. But many, of course, were trapped in such a position that they couldn't be got out, or else the fire had taken hold and they couldn't be got to. What a helpless position these men must have found themselves in. Many sleeping, completely unawares, and then suddenly thrust into this world of disaster with not one but two enormous collisions. The fire started to reach the cargo carried by the Scots on their train, and the crackling flame, shifting wood and shouting men was joined by the sounds of small arms and rifle shells starting to cook off in the luggage of the destroyed train. In the weeks and even years after the accident, other stories would be told about the sound of gunshots in the wreckage. Stories about men trapped, with flames advancing, who reached for their weapon and took what they thought might be a less horrific route to their maker. Other stories also did the rounds, those of officers who worked their way around the carnage, shooting men who were trapped with no hope of escape, those who lay wounded, hurt, trapped, and begged for the mercy. A truly terrible concept, but we, well, we only need to revisit the scenes from New York 86 years later, in September of 2001, people in not insignificant numbers made a very similar decision when trapped between flames and freedom. As horrendous as it is, my personal belief is that I thoroughly believe it took place. At four o'clock in the afternoon, a roll call was carried out of the 500 Royal Scots who had travelled from Libert in the early hours. 58 men and seven officers were capable of answering their name as they paused from the work of trying to help the wounded. 65 of 500. White sheets covered bodies in the field next to the line before they were transported away to either a local church or down to Gretna. Images of the scene would most likely haunt those who had seen it for the rest of their lives. Three passenger trains and two freight trains had come together in the most brutal way, shattering a peaceful morning. The fire brigade had arrived on the scene at 11am and joined the, the efforts to tackle the blaze. And even with their assistance, it took till the morning after the accident to finally extinguish the flames on this remote Scottish section of track. And only at that point could the work of recovery begin and the efforts to understand the toll of the accident. 
By the morning of the 24th, newspapers were already reporting the accident as the country's worst, the deadliest on our shores. The initial estimate of the dead was 158 lives lost and over 200 injuries. As the wreckage was cleared and the details became clearer, those numbers firmed up. Of the passengers on the local train, two lives were lost and the express train accounted for seven further deaths and 54 injuries. But when these numbers were compared to the losses on the troop special, the scale of Quinton's Hill really comes into view. An exact number of the Royal Scots was very, very difficult to pin down. The roll list of the regiment was destroyed in the fire following the crash. But in the end, a death toll of 227 was attributed to the accident, with a further 246 injuries. The next highest death toll from a railway crash in our country, well, that would take place at Harrow and Wealdstone 37 years later, and that was over a 100 short of the casualty toll here. The war continued and men were still required for battle, so a couple of days after the accident, a call went out to raise a new battalion in Edinburgh, which now feels a little cold, but men were needed. Tragedy here didn't stop the war in Gallipoli or Flanders. On the 24th of May, the bodies of the Royal Scots were returned to Edinburgh for burial. Unfortunately, not all of them could make the journey. A number were never recovered, their bodies completely destroyed by the scale and ferocity of the blaze. Of the troops from the special, 83 bodies were identified, 82 were recovered but unrecognisable, and 50 were missing altogether, giving the regiment's total of 215. A mass grave was dug in the city's Rosebank Cemetery, and the coffins interred there three deep and the top row were all covered in the Union flag. The ceremony was attended by 50 of the wounded and the bodies escorted by the 15th and 16th Battalion Royal Scots. The final tragedy of Quinton's Hill came in the form of four bodies which were unidentified and which appeared to be the remains of children. One coffin was simply labelled as little girl, unrecognisable, and another, three trunks, probably children. As no children were reported missing, the railway company moved the bodies to Glasgow for possible identification, but no one came forward to claim the bodies. Quinton's Hill is the worst accident which has ever taken place on our small island. By nearly double that of the next accident down the list is Harrow and Wealdstone. For, the reason, for this reason, it's important that we discuss it. The events here are a perfect example of just how wrong it can go when things don't play out properly. A lot of the pieces were on the board at Quinton's Hill that morning, and juggling them clearly didn't go to plan. But despite the complexity of what was being done there, there was a way of moving all those pieces around which didn't lead to disaster. 
So now it's time to understand what went wrong in that remote section of line and why infamy, not ambiguity, was the destination for Quinton's Hill. And to start to understand that, we need to revisit that morning, specifically what happened in the signal box. The railway has many rules, many, many rules, but they are all in place for a reason. One look at the modular rulebook folders that staff are issued with nowadays is all you need to understand that. So a good place to start might be to look back at the day and to start to wonder about how the rules were followed on the 22nd of May, 1915. Four six hundred, six a.m. That is the time that James Tinsley's shift started in the signal box at Quinton's Hill, and it's also the time that George Meekin's turn of duty came to an end. This is the time that the railway expected both men to swap duties, and the time they were paid till and from. It's not unreasonable. This sort of arrangement happens in every single job, so it really does beg the question as to how Tinsley was supposed to commute in from Gretna to Quinton Hill on a train which wasn't even supposed to leave Carlisle until ten past six. And actually, we routinely know that that didn't leave until 17 minutes past. It doesn't seem to work out unless time travel did take a part in the equation. This wasn't a rarity either. This was a an established way of working. The signaller in Gretna would contact Tinsley, who lived in the town. He would do this if the local train was going to be shunted at the loops. And in this circumstance, he would make his way to the station and board the train. This meant that, realistically, he was normally arriving about half past, and in turn, when Tinsley was working the night shift, Meakin would arrive at some point between six and half past, although he lived a little closer, 12 minutes walk away. So, both men had attested to having come to this arrangement between themselves. It wasn't authorised, it wasn't a formal arrangement, nobody had assessed or sanctioned it because they both wanted to get a little bit of a lie-in on early turns. It was just two blokes who worked something out between themselves, and I imagine they believed that it was a harmless alteration which changed nothing. However, right from the off, to do this unofficially meant that they had to be little... Well, I guess they saw them as white lies. Fabrications. Each signal box has a logbook, a train register which records the comings and going of the box, the actions taken, the time they were taken, and, well, if you think of it as a very primitive black box, it records the comings and goings and actions of the box in case it ever needed to be scrutinised. One of the first things that investigators will do if there's been an accident involving anything like a signal box is they will come and they will take the train register and they will interrogate it. For that reason, it's important that this book be accurate. And while there's every chance the book could be checked by area supervisors, etc., so you don't necessarily, well, because it can be checked by people, if you're not quite doing things correctly, like 
changing shift at the time you're not supposed to be, you might not want the book to reflect that. So in slides, the first little white lie, the time noted that the box was handed over shows 0600. It wouldn't show 0625 or 0628. It wouldn't even show 0632, which was the time on the 22nd of May that the shifts changed over. Just one number in the logbook, though. What harm could that do? Ah, yeah, actually, sorry. Well, there is another issue. All of the movements through the area are recorded as well, and if Meekin went home at six in the morning, it would be really strange to find his name next to an arrival 25 minutes later than that, or a log of a train moved into the loops, or, well, anything in the signal box at that time. And, well, what if Meekin wrote the log entry, but Tinsley's name appeared? The handwriting might give the game away with a logbook subjected to any scrutiny. So the gentleman involved had come up with a practice. And it was as follows. Every morning, the train movements for the log between 0600 and the actual point they changed shifts were recorded, as they should be, but on a separate piece of paper. All the detail, but not in the log. At the point the relief arrived, the men would sign their hand over time as if it was 0600, and then the oncoming signaller would copy the movements from the paper back into the book with the correct handwriting and correct names. Now, Call me old-fashioned, but I feel as though the more effort you have to put into making something look like you're not doing anything wrong, the worse your discrepancies might be. At some point, it seems as though hiding this little fudge had turned into a bit of a cottage industry. And again, just want to throw the word fabrication in here. It's a bit fraudulent, and they must have known that at the point when they were doing it. And there's another factor here. It does impact on the ability of these signals to work properly, because at the point when these men should be getting settled in, arriving at work, wiping the sleep from their eyes and getting their head in the game, signaling trains, one of the first things they actually have to do is forge a handover and copy across the log entries one by one from the paper into a book. There are blatantly other things that they could be doing in that time, concentrating on their role for one. And the last factor on this particular issue is, for me personally, there is just an inherent risk here about how you consider rules. If you believe they are moldable or bendable in one instance, does that mean that they are in others? Does it matter how serious you perceive each individual rule to be? Do we have any discretion as real women or women to make our own assessment on how stringently each rule should be followed? I don't think so, and I think that bending or breaking the little ones can eventually lead to failures where it counts. One brick does not hold up your whole wall, but if you go into your living room and take 30 out, see what happens. One of the most crucial parts of understanding Quinton's Hill is understanding what happened in that signal box. We know that there were two bobbies, two signalmen, sorry, in there, and that only one could be responsible for the signal box. Only one could be the signaller on duty. And we also know that by 0601, that just should have been Tinsley. But I don't know, truthfully, if he would have even have left his house by that time. 
Reading the reports and the accounts of both signalers, there is a sense as to when the handover took place. At 06.14, the goods train that had left Carlisle at 4.30 arrived at Quinton's Hill. Meekin placed that in the, in the down loop, and the brakeman of that train wandered across to the box to chart, ask about progress, etc., and left after about 15 minutes. At around 6.22, Meekin detained the empty coal wagons at the home signal on the up main. He'd just been informed that Kingmore couldn't accommodate them so that they would be stopping with him for a little while. He decided to hold them there so he could bring the local train across to the up without delay. He needed it to wait there to let the expresses pass, and in all fairness, he probably didn't want to stop all day, and Tinsley was on board that train. The local train arrived on the down main at around half past, and at this point, Tinsley alighted while the train was being propelled across to the up line and made his way up to the box, arriving there at around about 6.32. Round about exactly that time, Meekin received a call from Lockerbie, which told him that the troop special was on his way. Meekin relayed the message to Tinsley, and then Meekin set about carrying out the last few bits of signalling that he would that morning. He set the points for the up loop, cleared the signal for the coal empties to draw into the siding. The freight did so, couplings clunking away in the background, as Tinsley would have dumped his belongings and gotten himself squared away. At 06.34, Meekin replaced the points for the loop, so that they would keep traffic on the main line, and put the signal back to danger. He sent a signal back to the station before. To Gretna. Train out of section. He let him know that way, that the local was clear of the down main, and he accepted the late-running 5.50 Express from Carlisle, the first of the two delayed sleepers. There is one thing that Meakin is adamant about, however and that is that he did not give a train out of section signal to Kirkpatrick, the next box down the line to the north, to let him know that those coal empties were clear of the main line, even though it was him that had sent them into the loop. Nor did he send a signal to Kirkpatrick box to let him know that the local train was standing on the up line, that signal known as a blocking back. His reasoning there was that he couldn't have sent it until the coal empties had moved anyway, and as far as he was concerned at that point, the job was handed over. Meakin's account from this point onwards is that he sat in the chair and read the paper before he left, making occasional remarks about the war's effort and crucially paid no attention to the signalling. That was Tinsley's job now. Tinsley stepped up to the controls of the box and took over as signaller. When investigators spoke to him, his account was that he told them that the first signals he had dealt with related to the passing of the 0550 Express, informing Gretna that it was in his section and telling Kirkpatrick that it was on its way up. The next thing he did took place at 0638, not long after he had taken over. The next bells he heard were from Kirkpatrick box to the north, and they came at 442. Is line clear, they asked, for the troop train from the north? And Tinsley sent back, line clear. Apparently, from the point that he had alighted from the local train, he told investigators, to the point the first collision occurred, the train stood 60-odd yards outside the box on the up main, completely escaped his memory. He then received train entering section for the troop train, telling him that train had passed Kirkpatrick box and was on his way to him at speed. He offered it forwards to Gretna, 
the next box to the south, and it was accepted. So with a train offered from the north, a train accepted from the south, the theoretical route now existed for the troop train to travel at line speed from Kirkpatrick through the upmain at Quinton's Hill where the local was standing, and on to Gretna. But there was one thing stopping that collision occurring. The final step of pulling the signals. And Tinsley did it. One by one, he cleared the upline signals, completely forgetting the local train in the progress. At around about the same time, he was offered the second sleeper from Gretna. Not knowing the mess he had just set in motion, he accepted it, and two minutes later, it too was entering the section and offered forwards. He knew nothing more until the point that that first horrendous collision took place, and by that point the second was unavoidable. Tinsley did the only thing he could with that scene playing out in front of him. He signalled in both directions. Obstruction. Danger. The lines were blocked. No further trains would arrive, but five already lay haphazardly arranged across the four tracks in front of him. It was very clear that Tinsley had forgotten the stopper, the local train, and had accepted the troop train straight through it. His relatively feeble explanation was that the only thing I can account for for my forgetting about the local passenger from Carlisle standing on the upline was my mind being occupied in entering up the times of the trains between six and the hour that I took duty. But was that enough of a reason for all of this carnage? Frankly, no. By 1915, the railway had seen enough death and destruction to rely simply on people's memories to remember what trains were in the way of others, and that's why rules, processes and procedures were amended and had specific safeguards introduced over the years. It's over a hundred years ago now, but Quinton's Hill did not take place in the industry's infancy. Even the very dated, but still occasionally used, absolute block signalling of the time had been around for 65 years, and mandatory on all passenger lines for 25 years by this point, by 1915. This was not the railway of the first half of the 1800s, reliant on timetables for train separation. No, this was the full-on industrial revolution technological marvel of the turn of the century railway. And this wasn't good enough. So next, I think we should look at the safeguards which should have prevented this accident and try and find out why they didn't manage to. like to look five years younger. In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I've mentioned the type of signaling in play at Quinton's Hill a couple of times already in the podcast here. Absolute block. And we have gone through it in a little more detail in the past, but basically... Each signal box along the line offers trains to the next. They accept and offer them on, etc., etc., provided that the line is clear. Communication is all done by telegraph and bell cords with instruments which show whether or not the line is clear. Has been a little while, though, so for a quick recap. A really basic example of how it works would be to picture three signal boxes in a line, A, B, and C. Box A sends a bell cord to box B. Is line clear? B sends back to line A, B sends back to A, line clear. This equates to box A offering a train and box B accepting it, providing the line is clear. Box A then sends a cord train entering section, B acknowledges, and then immediately sends a cord to box C offering the train forwards. Is line clear? If C answers yes, then box B will clear all of the signals, allowing the train to run through and so on and so forth all the way down the line. There is one final part to this cycle, though, and in terms of Quinton's Hill, it has real prominence in this accident. Once the train is passing signal box B, and the signaler is happy it's complete, and the line up to his box is clear, he sends a last signal back to box A, train out of section. This resets the block equipment back to normal, and lets the signaler at box A know that he can offer another train down the line. In fact, without having received train out of section... He's not allowed to, and the equipment in his signal box will lock and prevent him from doing it erroneously. So, if we think back to one of the things that Meekin said in his testimony, he had not given a train out of section signal to Kirkpatrick to let the signaler there know that the call train had gone into the loop. Which is really interesting, because Tinsley stated that the first interaction he had was related to the northbound express, and than the erroneous acceptance of the troop train and clearing of the signals. If neither of the men sent a train out of section to Kirkpatrick, then the troop train couldn't have been offered. Somebody did. Somebody isn't remembering the whole story. The signaler at Kirkpatrick logged the train out of section as having been sent at 0634. Uh, that's the time that George Meekin stated that he had set the points to normal and returned the signal to danger 
and the time on the clocks between the two boxes was shown to be accurate. So had you just set the points to normal and returned the signal to danger and the line was clear, that would be the exact point you'd probably send that signal back across. However, Meekin studiously denies having done it. Whichever one of the men in that box did send the signal to Kirkpatrick, and I think it's clear that I have a feeling on which one it was, they wouldn't have been doing something wrong in isolation. The line was cleared of the last train Kirkpatrick had sent, and the wagons, if they'd just been looped for the troop train, and the local wasn't in the equation, that's exactly the signal that would need to be sent. The, the goods wagon would go into the loop, that signal would be sent, and then Kirkpatrick could offer the troop train forwards. But we can't forget the local train because it was there. The indicator equipment that sent signals back and forth couldn't be set to show that a train was on the line without Kirkpatrick having offered one. This is just the way the system was worked. But there was a way that the box in Kirkpatrick could be warned that the line had been blocked by the local train. A signal that the signal is at Quinton's Hill could have sent to them was called blocking back. A different bell cord which would have warned him, don't send another train. Yes, that one you sent me is clear now, but don't send another one because I've got something in the way and the line isn't clear. That bell cord should have been sent immediately after the train out of section signal. It would have informed Kirkpatrick not to offer any trains forward as the signal section was occupied. Tinsley states that he never sent this cord to Kirkpatrick, and Meekin states he couldn't as when he placed the local on the up, the wagons were still on the up themselves which would be a moot point if he vigorously denied sending that train out of section, as he would have had a finger on the equipment needed to send it and would have been the one who'd facilitated the offering of the train in the first place. Meekin also stated that he never heard Tinsley sending the blocking back signal, nor did he feel the need to remind him to do so. Tinsley? Well, he was adamant that he didn't take control of the signaling until two minutes after that bell cord was sent. Who's to say? What is clear is that at the time, and in fact for the 34 minutes before that point, there shouldn't have been any ambiguity as to who was signalling trains. It should only ever have been Tinsley. So we find ourselves here. Tinsley has forgotten all about the local service. He's probably been able to see it from the windows of the box if he'd looked, but his time was spent moving from the register as he entered the paper scribbles into the book proper, as if he'd been there since six, and the lever frame and bell equipment as he answered the odd rings that signified the first sleeper coming through. The first safeguard is gone. Somebody told Kirkpatrick that the line was clear. He doesn't know the local was shunted, so he offers his troop train across. Ding, 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 ding. Is line clear? And Tinsley, bereft of the memory of the train, sat outside, the very train he came to work on sends back. Ding, 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 ding. Line is clear. The train is accepted. A few minutes pass. Kirkpatrick sends him a message. Another bell cord telling him that the troop train is coming into his section. Headed towards the local, stood there on the line. As he would, any other day, Tinsley offered the inbound train to Gretna to the south, and Gretna accepted. The line was clear. All that remains now is for Tinsley to set his signals off, to clear them, to allow the troop train to steam past uninhibited. And this 
here, this is the point where another safeguard should have stepped into play. When Tinsley went to pull the met the lever, the signal lever to clear the signals, he should have found a collar on it. A physical piece of metal slipped over the top of the handle, which physically prevented him from releasing the signals. At the point when the local was shunted across and sat behind the home signal, in a position which would be dangerous if it was cleared, a collar should have been placed on that lever. In exactly the sort of situation as this. When the train was forgotten about, it would have offered protection, turning the country's worst ever crash into a nerve-wracking near-miss or a frustrated way to the signal that should be clear. But it wasn't the case. Meekin did not fit a collar when he brought the train across, nor did Tinsley when he took control, although by that point he had professed to having completely forgotten about the train. Meekin's words on the subject were, The local passenger train was crossed to the upline by my operation, but after the arrival of that train on the upline, I did not put the lever collar onto the up-home signal. Did not consider it necessary so long as I had charge of the box to put on the lever collar. I think we can all appreciate the necessity with the benefit of hindsight. Tinsley, he told investigators, I am aware of the regulations for the use of the lever collars, but having only used them for protection of vehicles taken off trains and stored in the loop, and this was done to prevent me from making a mistake in running a train into the loop when it was blocked. I did not use the lever collars for the main line because when the main line was blocked, I had obtained the blocking back authority from the signal box in the rear. And my instrument at that time would be locked. And in my opinion, there was not the same necessity for the use of lever collars. Tinsley was relying on the use of the blocking back protection, which had not been arranged on this occasion, despite whose responsibility you might believe it was to have sent that signal. We keep circling around to the issues of rules in this episode, and there is a reason. When I spoke earlier about choosing which rules you follow, well, the use of lever collars was dictated by rules as well, and these are the instructions issued by the Caledonian Railway, the employers of both signalmen. Lever collars are supplied to every signal box on the line, with the exception of those working single line sections only. They must be used by the signalman as a reminder that the line is blocked under any of the following circumstances. One of the items on that list, when a train has been shunted onto the opposite running line, just as the local train had been, the exact situation in black and white, no ambiguity. The instructions went on to say that the signalman must place the lever collar over the handle of the lever working the signal, which protects the line upon which the obstruction exists and so prevent the signal from being lowered until the collar is removed. No ambiguity. This was a rule, a method of work which formed part of the safety system for signal boxes up and down the country. Neither of the signalmen placed a collar. Neither seemed to appreciate the black and white nature of the instruction. When Tinsley said that he didn't believe there was the same necessity for the use of collars when blocking back, he was perfectly entitled to that opinion but he had zero entitlement to act upon it and to do anything but follow the rules as they were laid out. The reason for this is clear at Quinton's Hill. Between blocking back and collars, the two methods would have prevented the accident. They could, and indeed should, have been used in conjunction, offering two layers of protection, both able to backstop the other if a failure occurred. This is a guiding principle of safety management system, multiple layers of protection never relying on a single point of failure. 
with neither in place, the only thing being relied upon was Tinsley's memory, a clearly fallible tool, and the lives of 227 people were lost because of an astonishing incident of forgetfulness. This almost laughable situation of the two signalmen failing to successfully complete the duties expected of them is just frustrating. When we spoke earlier about little rules being bent or broken, this, this is why we don't do it, why we shouldn't do it. We weaken our defences by removing components of them. There was one last chance. One chance for somebody who wasn't based in that signal box and complicit in the mistakes and errors and, quite frankly, culture that was going on in there they could have saved the day they weren't concerned with checking a fraudulently completed train register or getting a look at the morning paper to check the the goings on of the war there was somebody else who could have made a difference and that means we need to speak once more about another rule that we touched on earlier rule 55 Rule 55 was designed to halt the spate of accidents which was occurring due to the forgetfulness of signalmen, signalmen such as Tinsley. Under the rule, trains stopped at signals must dispatch a member of the train crew to the signal box. He went not only to remind the signaller of the presence of the train, but also to check separately that all of the necessary precautions were in place. Collars, blocking back, he was to be the representative of the train and everybody on board to make sure that they were in a safe location, and that they were protected. Part of the rule itself says, where mechanical or other appliances are provided to serve as a reminder to the signalman that certain signals must not be lowered or turned off, he must make prompt use of such appliances. In our context, that's the blocking back and the lever collars. The rule continues, the guard, shunter or fireman who has gone to the signal box in accordance with clauses A and B, must return to the train after receiving an assurance that the signalman has protected it by such appliances. When the local train stopped on the up main, Rule 55 meant that somebody from that train must be sent to make sure the train was protected. They were going to be there for longer than three minutes. They, they knew what was happening. They were getting shunted for trains to pass. So someone was sent, and in that case, it was the fireman, George Hutchinson. Once the train was stationary on the up main, Hutchinson climbed up the stairs to the box and he wrote that his intention was to carry out rule 55 and when he entered the box he walked over to the train register and entered his name in it. Didn't know at the time, though, as he was supposed to, but never mind. When he entered the box, Tinsley was stood at the book and he indicated the line on the book which Hutchinson should sign. Hutchinson's own words when speaking to investigators were that I am aware... It is my duty, when carrying out Rule 55, to see that my train is protected and thereafter to return to my engine. 
but I did not carry out this rule in its entirety as I remained some time in the signal box. When I left the signal box, I did not see that the lever collar was placed upon the up-home signal lever, but simply took the signalman's word for it that he knew we were on the up-line. There is an old adage about making assumptions and how they make an ass out of you and me. Hutchinson made an assumption that the signaller knew and had remembered that he was there. And why wouldn't he, I suppose? He'd just gotten off the train, hadn't he? But he made the effort to go up to the box as the rules said. So he went through the motions. He didn't actually carry out the simple act of just looking over and glancing for the collar on the lever or just getting confirmation. You're right, mate. Just, uh, you've got us protected, haven't you? Just like the use of collars themselves, this rule didn't allow for ambiguity or interpretation. Hutchinson should have gone up to the box, signed the register, sought assurance that his train was protected by a collar, and then immediately returned to it. He didn't, and as a result, when he returned to the signal, he saw the signal ahead he saw, sorry, when he returned to the train, he saw the signal ahead of him clear, and the troop train bearing down on them. He narrowly avoided the collision by jumping from the train and hiding under the wagon train in the up loop almost identical to what his driver was doing on the other side of the locomotive. A third potential protection. One more defensive wall against this horrific accident. Specifically, one designed to capture and defend against the forgetfulness of train driver, of signalmen. Ineffectual, because a black and white process was not followed. The Board of Trade Investigation unsurprisingly laid the blame for the accident at the foot of the two signalmen. Remarks in the conclusion clearly highlighted their failings. Meekin crossed the 610 local train from the down to the upline, and it was unquestionably his duty to have protected it, both by sending the blocking back signal to Kirkpatrick, and also by placing a clip on the up-home signal lever by handing over, before handing us over his duties to Tinsley. Tinsley should have also seen that the 610 local train was properly protected, as he was fully aware that it was standing on the upline, but his attention was probably taken up by making the numerous entries in the register, and also in dealing with the signalling of the two expresses. Having got the troop train accepted by Gretna Junction at 6.46, he lowered all the signals for it, forgetting all about the 610 local train, which was standing only 62 yards away from the centre of the signal box. Hutchinson, the fireman of the 610, did not escape a mention. He came to the signal box to carry out Rule 55 and signed his name in the register in accordance with the instructions. Tinsley saw him do this, and although Hutchinson remained in the cabin some four minutes before returning to his engine, he neglected to get an assurance from Tinsley that his train was protected by a collar being placed on the lever of the up-home signal, as he should have done. The conclusion continued. This disastrous collision was thus due to want of discipline on the part of the signalman, first by changing duty at an unauthorised hour which caused Tinsley to be occupied in writing up the train register book, and so diverted his attention from its proper work, secondly by Meekin handing over the duty in a very lax manner, and thirdly by both signalmen neglecting to carry out various rules specifically framed for preventing accidents 
due to forgetfulness on the parts of signalmen. After a train crash, particularly nowadays, there can be a few investigations taking place concurrently. The RAIB, they will undertake an investigation to a certain cause, the Rail Accident Investigation Branch. They don't apportion blame, they go through the technicalities, this is what happened, this is why it happened. Police forces, or the health and safety executive, they can undertake other investigations and pursue prosecutions if such a case would be appropriate, but they tend to take place separately. This is kind of similar in 1915, although the location of its accident brought its own complications. Due to the fact that Quinton's Hill is just that close to the border with England, a number of people recovered actually died in hospitals in England. For this reason, there was a much broader mix of organisations involved, and the whole system became quite convoluted. The Railway Department of the Board of Trade had responsibility for the actual accident report, where I've written the majority of this podcast episode from. But in Scotland, the prosecutor fiscal investigates deaths, and in the UK, the coroner investigates deaths. If the prosecutor fiscal found culpability on the part of anyone, he could order their arrest and charge them with culpable homicide. Whereas if the coroner's jury in the UK, in England, sorry, found that the death was due to neglect, the coroner could indict charges of manslaughter against the named parties. The coroner for Carlisle, Mr. T.S. Strong, he asked for guidance from the Home Office, and he was instructed to conduct inquests on those who had died in England, as he would in any other situation. Now, that inquest opened in May, but it was adjourned until June to allow the Board of Trade investigation to finish up. When the coroner's jury had heard evidence from others, including Tinsley, Megan and Hutchinson, Strong, he summed up the evidence to the jury, and he highlighted that if Meekin and Tinsley had obeyed the rules on, well, the register, the blocking back, or the lever collars, they couldn't have forgotten that stationary train there. He concluded his summing up of the whole case with, If you find, as a result of your deliberations, that the rules and safeguards were broken by one or more of the railway men concerned, or in other words, that they have been negligent, there remains one point which you must decide, and it is this. Was that negligence of such a character, having regard to all the surroundings, as to be culpable negligence? In other words, gross negligence. If so, it was manslaughter. The jury deliberated and decided that negligence, culpable negligence, was to blame, and therefore a chance of manslaughter, a charge of manslaughter, brought. The solicitor representing the three women protested that committing them to trial was outside the coroner's jurisdiction as the alleged offence had been committed in Scotland and the coroner stated that he'd been instructed to proceed by the Home Office. The verdict of the English inquest was to leave Tinsley in an unusual situation as well because, well, he was arrested by the Scottish authorities on the 29th of May and charged with culpable homicide. He now faced a charge of manslaughter in England based on exactly the same case. After the discussion between the law officers of both countries, it was decided to proceed against the three men in Scotland. The 24th of September brought a trial at the High Court in Edinburgh. Tinsley, Meakin and Hutchinson were the defendants, and all three pled not guilty to the charges of culpable homicide and breach of duty. In what seems like an incredibly short time frame by today's standard, the case concluded after a day and a half. It had been submitted to the Lord Justice General that there was no case to answer by Hutchinson. The submission was accepted by the General and the jury were actually instructed to find Hutchinson not guilty at the conclusion. 
No witnesses were called for Meekin and Tinsley, but their counsel sought to persuade the jury that neither had been criminally negligent, but that Tinsley had just had a momentary loss of memory. Lord Strathclyde, presiding, summed up the case with the following, well, scathing statement. At 6.45 in the morning of the day in question, the men in the signal box at Quinton's Hill were asked to accept the troop train coming from the north. They accepted it. That meant that they gave the signal to the north that the line was clear and that the troop train might safely come on. At that very moment when the signal was given, there was before the very eyes of the men in the signal box a local train which was obstructing the line on which the troop train was to run. One man in the signal box had actually left the train a few minutes before, just at the time when it was being shunted onto the up line. The other man had a few minutes before directed the local train to leave the down main and go on to the up main. That is the staggering fact that confronts you. If you can explain that fact consistently with the two men having faithfully and honestly discharged their duties, you should acquit them. If you cannot explain that staggering fact consistently with the men having faithfully discharged their duties, then you must convict them. The jury retired to consider their verdicts at 12.40pm and returned only eight minutes later, finding Hutchinson not guilty as directed, but Tinsley and Meakin guilty as charged. After hearing mitigation, Lord Strathclyde sentenced Tinsley to three years penal servitude and Meakin to 18 months imprisonment. Hard time for the causation of a very hard moment in the railway's history. There has been much discussion about whether or not the blame laid at the feet of the signallers was done so fairly or not. It's incredibly unlikely that some of the practices that were so heavily criticised could have been done without any knowledge of the company, and that in turn means that some of the blame should surely have been taken by them. It was their safety culture and their rules, and they were not making sure it was done properly. The unusual time shifts, for example. Tinsley used to board the stopper at Gretna Green Station, that is the station where the station master was responsible for managing Quinton's Hill signal box. I find it incredibly implausible that they would be unaware of the fact that one of their signalers was stood on the platforms nearly half an hour after their shift started. Adding to this, that surely the railway should have had some interest in trying to ensure that safety rules were being followed, and a culture was clearly in place when they, but they weren't. A 2015 BBC documentary entitled Britain's Deadliest Rail Disaster, Quinton's Hill, talked in some detail about the fact that those two men may actually have been made scapegoats for the railway. It also found fault with the railway company's desire to run a peacetime service to maintain profits, even though the network was experiencing extra wartime traffic. It talked of the pressure that this would have put on signalling staff to maintain the service and the times. It also criticised the railway company and the government for using older wooden stock for the troop train, arguing that it was already known it was unsafe and in the process of withdrawal, and that this was a risk that was not justified, even in the environment of war. 
Finally, the documentary also sought to take some blame away from Tinsley because he may have been suffering from a form of epilepsy which affected his short-term memory, which they argued may have explained why he might simply have not been aware of the waiting local train. At the very least, it was telling that both men were released after a year and both ended up working for the railway once more after they returned back to the world of free men and work. Could it be possible that they were paid to take the fall? There are certainly those out there who believe that's the case, although who am I to say? I try to deal in facts, tend to deal with reports and reputable news sources and things like that, but there's definitely food for thought there. Finally, let's talk about memorials. The accident at Quinton's Hill is marked by a number of them. A large stone Celtic cross and a roll of honour can be found in Rosebank Ceremony, Edinburgh, the burial place of the Royal Scots who lost their lives. An annual memorial is held there where respects can be paid. In Glasgow in 2011, a memorial was unveiled to the lost children who were killed in the crash. At the city's western necropolis, the memorial stone reads, The Lost Children of Mary Hill. They were sadly never named or claimed. If you were to travel to St Anne's Church in Portsmouth, there you would find a plaque in memory of Lieutenant Commander Charles Harold Evelyn Head, Royal Navy. The Whitehead officer of HMS Vernon, killed in a rail accident at Gretna Green while on naval service. Possibly not where you would expect to find a memorial referencing this accident, but... He was placed there by his fellow officers. A little closer to the scene, you can find a cairn in Gretna Green, atop a bronze plaque reading, In memory of 214 officers and soldiers of the 7th Scots Royal Scots, the Royal Regiment, who, together with a further 13 railmen and other passengers, died in the Quintons Hill Rail disaster on the 22nd of May 1915. The crash site, about half a mile to the north, can be seen from this spot. That memorial was erected by the Scottish area of the Western Front Association in May of 1995. And finally, one last memorial, one last plaque, can be found on a bridge overlooking the scene of the accident. Yet another place you can pause and ponder. An incident on the scale of Quentin's Hill is not something that can be forgotten easily, nor is it something that you would ever want to. As the trains pass by the loops now, they pay no attention. Passengers probably don't even notice. I passed through there um, last month, and I had to pay attention to where we were to spot it. The signal box is long gone, and there's not really anything of consequence to draw the eye. A remote, quiet area of insignificance. And yet on a footbridge looking down upon it, these words are inscribed. No wreaths to commemorate our glory day, nor tears to be shed on this permanent way. Just flowers of the forest for youth in their prime, for the piper's lament stills the passage of time. No wreaths and no sorrow as memories unfold, just eternity's promise, they shall never grow old.
Thank you once more for joining us as we start season two. Once again, please like, share and review. Come interact with us on social media, Twitter or Facebook. Just search for at Signals to Danger or at Daniel Fox Rail. And if you do want to support the podcast, I know it's been a while, but I'm back now. If you do want to support the podcast, please feel free to get yourself over to SignalsToDanger.com and either look at the support or the shop pages. Until the next episode, travel safe.